Good afternoon, everybody. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm not used to these up in East Tennessee and Appalachia. Uh, It's wonderful to be here and an honor to be with you. Jeffrey, thank you so much, and Sage, it's great to be back with you guys, and Noel and Tim, thank you very much for your warm welcome and your hospitality, and uh, I will try not to bore you to death all week, uh, but it's, uh, it's an honor to be here because I consider All Saints Church as not only one of the great parishes in the South, but also in America, and uh, the last time I was here was several years ago, and uh, one of my heroes and one of the outstanding citizens of the city of Atlanta, uh, Charlie Yates, had his requiem here, and it was a very, very special occasion. And Matt Kuchar sat right behind me, and I was tempted to ask him for some tips. Uh, and the in 1988, my wife Margie and our two sons, Henry and John, and I were living in an apartment in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, while our house was being built. And uh, upstairs over our apartment was a man uh, by the name of John Moore. He wouldn't mind my telling you that's his name. And his nickname was was Horace. And uh, as we say down south, uh, Horace was a little touched. <laughs> and a wonderful, dear human being. And actually, I would refer to him as our guardian angel because he lived up above us and was constantly in our lives and his... Um, Down syndrome daughter, Katie, was a dear friend of ours, and the kids loved to play with her, and we'd have her down, and it was very enjoyable. So I'd been asked to uh, do Holy Week at St. Paul's Chestnut Hill in Philadelphia on the main line. And I sort of figured that they were brave enough to invite uh, a southern hobbit from Tennessee (laughs) to to come up and speak to all these sophisticated folks. Uh, They were, they're extremely brave. And, uh, but anyway, I'm out loading up my car, getting ready to fly up to Philadelphia. And Horace comes out on his deck and he sees me and he says, hey, preacher, what you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm getting ready to go preach. And he said, where are you going? And I said, Philly. He said, Philly, really? And I said, yeah. Uh, he said, how long are you going to be up there? And I said, a week. He said, a week? He said, you aren't preaching. You're doing a revival. <laughs> and what I would like to, to place before you is that although there might not be any sawdust and no tent, and I'm sure you hope no long-winded preachers and no altar calls, but 
it might sound a little incongruent to all of us that, that we in the Episcopal Church have a revival every year. And this revival begins, began yesterday on Palm Sunday and will continue through Easter Day and then on through Easter Day to Easter week. So it's a two-week revival. And if you turn in your book of common prayer, not now, but later, on page 902 and 903, you will find the readings in there for every day in Holy Week. And the church, in her wisdom, has said, you must die with Christ to be raised with Christ. And that one of the problems in our culture is that we all want to leapfrog to Easter and all the joy and all the celebration and all the fun stuff without first going through the agony of the passion. I borrowed the phrase dead man walking from Sister Helen Prejean from her book by the same title about her work in the Angola State Penitentiary in Louisiana working uh, with a man on death row. And what I would like to contend today and through this week is that the passion of Jesus is much more than is hanging on the cross, contrary to what Mel Gibson would want us to believe. In fact, I think it started probably midway through the ministry of Jesus, maybe one of those sleepless nights that he spent on the mountaintop in prayer when he left the disciples and he left the crowds and he went away by himself and he was there in meditation and in prayer seeking the will of the Father. And I think at this juncture in his ministry, even before Peter declared him as the Christ, that Jesus knew that if he were going to deliver his message in a way that made a difference to the people of Israel, to the people of God, he had to go to the citadel of the religion, the city of David, the city of God, Jerusalem, and confront the powers that be with his message a message derived from the character of God, which Jesus always emphasized, a character that was unconditional grace and complete generosity. A God for whom there were no outsiders. A God who made the sun shine on the just and on the unjust and the rain fall on the just and on the unjust. And against the hierarchy of the temple and of the leading religious figures, Jesus was always controversial, nearly in every segment of life. On the subject of marriage, on the subject of family life, on the subject of money, on the subject of 
who was clean and unclean on the holiness code. All of these things, Jesus seemed to abrogate the law of Moses and claim authority on his own, culminating in the most ludicrous statement that any pious Jew could have ever heard when he says in Mark's gospel that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Please. This hillbilly from Galilee. And so he decided he would have to go to Jerusalem, knowing the fate of the prophets Jeremiah, Amos, Micah, Isaiah, and that they all perished in Jerusalem, largely for stirring up the pot, he had to have known that he would be in danger when he went there to confront the powers that be. So what I would like for us to do these next four days is before we crown Jesus as Lord and Christ, let's look at the Jesus of it the man who struggled with his decision on what to do, not just the temptations in the wilderness with Satan, although those were plenty bad in and of themselves, but another temptation, perhaps his greatest temptation, a temptation that I would like to have expressed in contemporary terms by what Daniel Levinson, the social psychologist, who's written a book called A Season, or The Seasons of a Man's Life, in which he outlines different stages in the life of a man, could also be said for a woman, in terms of life cycle and life sequences. And what Levinson says that by the age of 30, A young man should have put away childish things. No more spring breaks in Panama City. That by 30, a man should should grow up, enter adulthood, get a real job, find a mate, raise a family, start a career, build for the future and the dreams that he has for his life and the goals that he has set for himself. If Jesus was perfectly human, as we contend, he himself must have dreamt about the same thing. Maybe go back to Nazareth, start a family, be on the PTA. Maybe he and his wife be the mixed doubles champion in the area and live out a long, full life. That's the temptation. That's why he sweats blood in Gethsemane, I think. 
because he knows if he goes to Jerusalem, he will become dead man walking. I always get a kick out of reading the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and Town and Country Magazine this time of year because they have in there these big ads run by Tiffany of these crosses that are bejeweled and dripping with diamonds and multiple carat gold and these expensive religious things. And I wonder if they would do the same thing if they had the electric chair to bejewel it. And would it be as popular? Dead man walking. We preach Christ crucified, Paul said to the Corinthians. Folly to the Greeks, scandal to the Jews. But this is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But before we get to the Easter of it, before we get to the Christ as Lord part of it, Let's enter into the Jesus part of it because to the degree that we die with Christ is the degree to which we will be raised with Christ. And that Easter becomes more than bunnies and jelly beans and eggs, but it comes the only hope we have to live by. Amen.